A group of four to eight-year-olds was asked this question, what does love mean? So I'm going to read some of their responses, beginning with Rebecca, age eight. When my grandmother got arthritis, she couldn't bend over and paint her toenails anymore. So my grandfather does it for her all the time, even when his hands got arthritis too. That's love. That's what she said. Billy, age four, when someone loves you, the way they say your name is different. You just know that your name is safe in their mouth. Pretty wise four-year-old. Carl, I can identify with Carl. Love is when a girl puts on perfume and a boy puts on shaving cologne and they go out and smell each other. (laughs) Oh, for the days of English leather and high karate and brute. All those things that were popular when I was about 14 years old. We just bathed in that stuff. Chrissy, age six, love is when you go out to eat and give somebody most of your french fries without making them give you any of theirs. She's getting close to the idea. Danny, age seven, love is when my mommy makes coffee for my daddy and she takes a sip before giving it to him to make sure it tastes okay. This is what seven-year-old Bobby wrote. Love is what's in the room with you at Christmas if you stop opening presents and listen. Chris, age seven, love is when mommy sees daddy smelly and sweaty and still says he is handsomer than Brad Pitt. <laughs> and Marianne, age four, this is for the dog lovers. Love is when your puppy licks your face even after you left him alone all day. And finally, Lauren, age four, oh, to be four years old again. Listen to what she says. I know my older sister loves me because she gives me all her old clothes and has to go out and buy some new ones. (laughs) If we really want to know what love is, we do not go to a dictionary or consult Siri. What we do is we go to the Word of God. And we go particularly to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus said in anticipation of his own impending sacrifice of love for us, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Even when his friends were his enemies. Can you imagine laying down your life for a good man? Paul writes about this in chapter 5 of Romans. Someone might be able to bring himself or herself to do that. But did they lay down your life for your enemies? That's what Jesus did for us. I like what Florence Alshorn said when she came to grips with what real love is. She said, I used to think that being nice to people and feeling nice was loving people. Now I know it isn't. Love is the most immense unselfishness, she writes. And it is so big I have never touched it. Love is giving a person one's full attention. Love is void of self-interest. Love is filled with self-giving. John Stott says, Biblical love, agape love, as Sam prayed about it in his prayer, that love is the sacrifice of self in the service of undeserving others. That's real love. 
And in the passage that we're considering today, from 1 Peter chapter 1, if you'll turn there, we're going to pick up where we left off two weeks ago in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 22, and we're going to read only two verses, which will serve as the basis for the morning message. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, reading from the New American Standard Bible. Please read along silently as I read aloud. Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren, fervently love one another from the heart, for you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable. That is, through the living and enduring Word of God. You might be surprised in these two verses that there's only one actual verb. There are modifying verbals, but there's only one verb. It's a command. Love is the command. And added to that is a reflexive pronoun, love one another. That is the emphasis of these two verses of Scripture. So how are we to love like this? Before I answer that question, it's not I, hopefully, who will answer it. The Word of God will answer it. Let's consider how often Jesus said, love one another. It's almost as if he were a broken record over and over and over again. He says, love one another, love one another, love one another. Would you conclude from the repetition of that command out of the mouth of the Lord Jesus Christ that our love for one another really is important? It's ultimately important. Francis Schaeffer years ago wrote a book entitled The Mark of the Christian. Typically, his writings are rather dense. They're philosophical. He was a Christian philosopher. But in this little treatise on the mark of the Christian, it was love between brothers and sisters in Christ. This is the final apologetic for the Christian faith. We can reason people in the ground when we defend our faith. But if we don't have love, it doesn't matter. Jesus says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, let's think a moment. Is there somewhere in the Old Testament where we are commanded to love one another? Yes, there is. In Leviticus, in the law, the 19th chapter and the 18th verse, Moses, speaking on behalf of God, commands Israel... To love one another. So how does Jesus say what he says in this verse from chapter 13 of John, verse 34? A new commandment I give to you, love one another. We'll go on to see what he qualifies that kind of love by saying. Love one another even as I have loved you. This is the newness of this love we have. It's a love that is like Christ's. But as we're going to see, it's actually the love of Christ being mediated through people in whom He dwells by His Spirit. How are we to love like this? Well, I ask you to look again at the text. And we will look at the second part of verse 22. Fervently love one another from the heart. I'm going to go through the back door. And we're to love one another from the heart. If you'll turn over to chapter 3 of this great epistle. Look at verse 15, where it says, Sanctify Christ as Lord in your heart. Some of your translations, and this gets at it in a way that we can grasp it a little more fully, says, Set apart Christ as Lord in your heart. 
we, when we set apart, Christ, set apart Christ as Lord in our heart, then we have the capacity to allow Him to empower us to love one another through one another. So, key to our being able to love this way, we love from the heart, a heart in which Christ has been acknowledged not only with our lips, but with our lives as our Lord. He is our boss, and therefore we are capable of loving with His kind of love. We are to love from the heart. The heart is the innermost part of who you and I are. It's the very seat of our personality. We're to love from the inside out. It's not to be something that's superficial. We're going to see this a bit later as we look at another part of this text. But what it is, it's from the heart. And notice also the way in which Peter writes this. He says, fervently love one another from the heart. The word translated fervently is a compound word in the original language. And it's a word which means to stretch oneself out. And actually it means to stretch oneself out as far as one can possibly stretch himself or herself out. There's a sense of intensity associated with the word translated fervently. And so, therefore, if we're going to love this way, we're going to be fervent in our loving. We're going to stretch ourselves out. We're going to go places we did not think we had the capacity to go and trusting Christ to love others through us. The way we know this is a word which suggests intensity, at least one way we can know is by looking at the way in which it's used in other places in the Bible. Let me give you one of those. Luke twenty-two forty-four, where Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, begging the Father, if it's possible, Lord, if it's Your will, please take this cup away. And the Scripture says, He sweat what looked like drops of great blood. That's what I would call intense. Wouldn't you? Fervent. That's the kind of love we are to love one another with. It's impossible, isn't it, for us to love this way, were it not for the fact that Christ lives in us. Paul writes to the Galatians, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, listen carefully, I live by the faith of That's the way the King James translation translates it, and that is the most accurate translation of all the translations that I have consulted. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loves me and gave Himself for me. Jesus lives in us. If we know God, we only know Him through Jesus, and Jesus Christ lives in us. And therefore, Jesus empowers us to live and love this kind of way. To stretch out to the extent that we know we can, but beyond as we trust in the Lord. For example, this idea of stretching out would perhaps be illustrated by the string of a violin being stretched to a tighter pitch so it can yield a higher note. Stretched very tightly. We're approaching... The Olympic season. And how many times, I cannot count, I have looked at photographs of athletes, particularly runners, particularly sprinters, and how they have just a few seconds to prove their worth and win a medal. 
And you probably have seen similar photographs where an athlete, male or female, is just so intense in his or her pursuit of the medal to win the race that you look at their muscles and their taut and you can see every vein bulging from their arms, their legs, their throats, even their heads. You can see the muscles. They are intense. They are stretching out in hopes of winning a crown that will fade. But we who know Jesus Christ have been called to love this way with this kind of intensity. The question for us is, are we... Loving with anything that approximates that kind of love in our lives. This is how we're to love like this. Here's the second question, and the final question we're going to ask this text. It's going to take a little longer to answer. It's the question, what enables us who follow Jesus to love like this? Well, the answers are in the text. God has the answer to that question for us in both of the verses which we have read. Let's read those parts of each of those verses which yield the answer. Verse 22, Since you have in obedience to the truth purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. That's the first answer that is given by the Holy Spirit through the pen of the Apostle Peter. But look at the second one, verse 23. For you have been born again, not of seed which is perishable, but imperishable, that is, through the living and enduring Word of God. I'm going to begin with the second statement that he makes in answer to the question, what enables us who follow Jesus to love like this? It's very clear. We have been born again. We've already been introduced to this idea in the introduction of First Peter. He brings it to the surface again. It's very important to our being able to live the Christian life, especially as it relates to our loving each other fervently from the heart. We must be born again. This is an impossibility apart from our having been born again. But let me go ahead and say something and please let this soak in for a minute. It's not simply an impossibility for people who have not been born again. It's an inevitability for those who have been born again. And we'll see why. The reason for that is the new nature we receive when we're born again is what makes it possible. The theologians call the new birth regeneration. And in regenerating us, God implants a new nature in us. Hold your place here. Turn to 2 Peter chapter 1. Verse 4. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 4, we read these words. For by these God has granted to us His precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. We who have been born again have become partakers of the divine nature. Please understand that when you were born again, God came to live in you. He lives in you. And He will never leave you. That's what the word born again would suggest to us. The Bible, when it says, you have been born again, it uses the tense in the language of the New Testament, which says something has happened in time past, and it has abiding results throughout eternity. When I was born again, nothing can undo undo that. Nothing. Nothing you can do, nothing I can do. I can't give myself birth. It has to come from outside of me. Actually, the idea used in the Word that is 
in this text suggest I've been caused to be born again. I was dead in trespasses and sin is what the Bible says. I was blind. I was darkened in the futility of my mind. I was dead, 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 dead when I came into this world, spiritually speaking. This new nature where God dwells in us. 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. May your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now when I think of you, I have your name, many of you, in my mind. And if your name comes to my mind, I think of the way you look. That's your body, isn't it? That's your body. Is the body important to the Lord? It is important to the Lord. Why? Because it's where the Holy Spirit dwells in our lives. And the Bible says, you probably know this, it says, what, do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? Therefore glorify God with your body. It's important that I do the best I can with what I've got left and honoring the Lord with my body, right? I need to be careful what I put in my body. I need to be careful how I exercise my body. I need to get proper rest. I need to take care of this body. Not so I can live longer. That's where most of us come down on this side of the discussion. Not so that I can live longer. So that I can be more useful to the Lord. He's got a good vessel through which He can convey Himself in the world. The body's important. It's important. What about the soul? May the God of peace himself sanctify you, spirit, soul, and body. The classical description of the soul is it's our minds, our wills, and our emotions. Think about Adam and Eve when they sinned. What happened to them? What had God told them would happen if they were to eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? He had told them, you can eat of any tree except that tree. You can have every fruit in the garden. Only one is off limits. And we would have probably done the same thing because we're so curious about stuff, right? When they ate, something happened. God had said to them, albeit that they would die. And Eve said it to the serpent when the serpent came and tempted her. And he said, surely you will not die. That's just like Satan, isn't it? He is the master of contradicting in a very subtle and persuasive way the Word of God. But we who know Christ, we need to be alert to that. What happened? Did she die? Did Adam die? Now, this is a trick question of sorts. Either way you answer it, you're right. Yes and no. Did their bodies die? Not immediately. About 900 years later, their bodies died. I think Eve died before Adam, but nevertheless, what can I say? They lived a long time, didn't they? Their bodies died. The Bible would suggest, and I'm getting off base a little bit here, not too far at least, that we know what the Bible says in Romans 5. Sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and man died. Yeah, we wouldn't die if we didn't have this sinful nature that we have in our lives. Well, what about the mind of this couple? 
did they still have the capacity to think? Well, we know they do because a conversation ensued between God and Adam. And Adam answered God's question intelligibly. He was thinking in his answer. What about the emotions? Did their emotions die? No, their emotions did not die either. Why do we know that? Because the Scripture says that Adam and Eve were ashamed. That's emotion, isn't it? And also, they were afraid. Adam didn't say that, but it's there in the text. They were afraid. Those are emotions, aren't they? Their emotions didn't die. Their minds did not die. They were corrupted, but they didn't die. And their wills did not die. How do we know that? Because they chose to hide. So, here in this world, when a person is born, that person is dead on arrival spiritually. Their bodies are alive. Their souls are alive. But the deepest and most important part of who they are, their spirit is dead. It's what Blaise Pascal said when he said, God has created man in his own image, and every man has a God-shaped vacuum in his or her life. Why? Because of the sinful nature in us. What about the Spirit? We don't talk a lot about the Spirit. We give attention to the body a lot. We give attention to the soul maybe a little less, depending on your bent. But what about your spirit? The most significant part, if we were to say one part is most significant, I think we'd be safe to say the Spirit is, because that's where God dwells in us. That's where the Holy Spirit takes up residence. That is the Holy of Holies for none other than Holy Spirit Himself. He is God. He lives in us. It's in our spirit. The divine nature is in us. We're not little gods. We're not proclaiming or trying to teach something that's New Age-ish, basically Hinduistic. It's Eastern religion. We're all gods, and we're migrating back into Brahman, the Godhead. We're not doing that. Hey, we are humans in whom the one true God has chosen to take up residence for His sake. Now, this is really important, too. When we typically think about being born again or the whole issue of salvation, we typically, if we're typical American Christians, we typically think about the benefit that is to us. There is incredible, unlimited benefit to us. Would you agree? We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. Unbelievable. It's unfathomable, actually. We don't know. We can only scratch the surface. However, do you know that the main person who is benefited and the person that we should think of when we think of our salvation all the time is not ourselves first, but God Himself? In Isaiah 43:25, God says, I, I am He who blots out your transgressions for My name's sake. Why did God save you and me? For His name's sake. That's why He sanctifies us. He sets us apart so that we could be used to glorify Him. Now, He's very generous to share with us. No doubt. And our salvation is precious. He's granted it to us. This passage, as we go back to chapter 1, look at it again. Verse 23, you've been born again not of seed, which is perishable but imperishable. The identity of the seed is Jesus Christ. 
by His Spirit in us. This seed is not perishable. It is not something that's just passing through. It is something which endures. It lasts, not subject to decay. And the means of this great salvation, this being regenerated, is the living and abiding Word of God. The writer of Hebrews says, the Word of God is living. It throbs with life. Now, I've never seen my Bible, and I have lots of them, I've never seen them sort of throb, but if I were not mistaken, many times it's as if these words leap off the page at me. It's unbelievable. And it's not because I'm a preacher. It's not because I have a spiritual gift of proclamation. It's neither of those things. It's because the Word of God is living, and I have been born again, and God speaks to me. If you do not understand the Bible, I'm not talking about all the little little things, I'm talking about the message of Scripture, then it's likely you have yet to be born again. Because when you're born anew, your eyes are open. You're alive spiritually. And God speaks. It's a living document. And it's an enduring document. The grass withers and the flower falls, the Bible says in Isaiah 40, verse 8, but the Word of our God endures forever. Jesus says, Heaven and earth will pass away, but My words will never pass away. What a marvelous thing the Word of God is. It's permanent and unchanging, therefore never irrelevant or outdated. There have been literally hundreds of millions of books written in the history of man. But do you know every one has an expiration date on it? Because the things that are there are going to pass away. And even the facts of science that are so ironclad in the minds of scientists. They think this is it. We finally understand everything. And then give it a generation or two or three, and then all that is upset, isn't it? By a new discovery that's more palatable and more logical. But the good news for us is there's no expiration date on the Word of God. It will not spoil nor ever lose its taste. The new nature makes it possible for us to live like this. And here's something that's kind of going to ring your bell. I've hinted at it already. The new nature demands it. When Christ lives in me, He demands that He live His life through me. In 1 John chapter 3, verse 16, the Bible says, by this we know what love is, that He laid down His life for us. He's talking about Jesus, right? This is how we know what love is. He laid down His life for us. And He goes on to say, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brethren, for the brothers. But whoever has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against his brother, how does the love of God dwell in him? That's practical, isn't it? When the love of God dwells in me and I see you And I'm aware of the fact that you're in need. You're my sister in Christ. You're my brother in Christ. What am I going to do? I'm going to do whatever I can to help you. And let me make clear that our first priority in this matter are other believers. Not to shut the world out, but other believers. Why? Because the world will know that Christ is the Son of God based upon the way in which we take care of each other. We're not to shut those on the outside out. 
but we are to focus on our brothers and sisters in Christ. Let me ask you this. Let me just use myself. I have a son. He's an adult son. He'll be 38 soon, next week. I have a daughter who'll be 35 in August. If they come to me and they say, Daddy, I need help. They don't do that very often. Now, I'm grateful that they passed that point in their lives. It's great. But you know, if they came to me, if they were 50 and I'm still alive, I'd say, son, let's sit down and talk about it. Let's see what we can do. Daddy loves you. I'm going to help you. Same with my daughter. I'm going to help her. They're my children. We help our family. That's just the norm, isn't it? Well, I hope you know that the spiritual family that you are a part of, if you're in Christ, if you've been born anew, that family is going to last forever. And hopefully the members of your natural family are brothers and sisters in Christ too. If they're not, we pray they will soon come to know Christ. So you can be whole as a family in Christ. But what we need to understand is we take care of our own, do we not? We do it in the body of Christ. And it's inevitable that it happened. 1 John 4, 7 says this. It says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone that loveth knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. If I don't love you in a practical way by reaching out to you when I know you're in need, and it's an unconditional kind of reaching out, that's pretty interesting. Because I was talking to a brother last night, we had dinner together after the worship service, and he was saying, I was thinking about your message, and I was trying to think, does the Lord ever put a condition upon our helping our brothers and sisters in Christ in a material way? And we thought and we thought, and we don't claim to have the final answer, but we couldn't find any condition. Wow, that's pretty risky, isn't it? But that's what God calls us to. We're family. We're brothers in Christ. We're sisters in Christ. We're family in Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, I love this verse. You may remember that when Paul brought the gospel along with Silas to the Thessalonians, he was only there about one month. He was run out of rail on a rail after about one month there teaching and preaching. And a beautiful thing was done by the Holy Spirit in birthing that church. In the first epistle, 1 Thessalonians 4, 9, this is what Paul wrote to them. He said, Now, as relates to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to teach you. Why? For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. Now, do you think that would be true of you and me too? Can we be taught by God? Would it be normal for us to be taught by God? Absolutely. He's living in us. That's one thing. But He's given us His Word. We read this wonderful passage from 1 Corinthians 13 about love. Listen carefully. Think about these descriptive words. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not jealous. Love does not brag. Love is not arrogant. Love does not seek its own. That's what the NASB says, the NIV. I love it. It says this, love does not insist on its own way. 
Love is not provoked, which simply means does not find itself easily angered. Do you fly off the handle pretty easily sometimes? You've got a short fuse. Love does not keep record of wrongs. Well, that's powerful, isn't it? That's who we are. That's our new nature. The Holy Spirit has poured abroad. The love of God has been poured abroad in our heart by the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. If we know Christ, the Holy Spirit indwells us and He has embedded His nature at the top of the list of the fruit of the Spirit. What is the first one? Love. We are taught by God, by the Word of God. This is why we need be in the Word of God. This kind of love is not an ooey-gooey kind of maudlin sentimentality. It's not this kind of love that just gives you goosebumps. It's a choice which we make as we depend upon the Lord. We've set apart Christ as Lord in our lives. And consequently, inevitably, we are going to be men and women, young men and young women, through whom God loves other people. So, the first answer to the question, what enables us to love like this? Being born anew. Here's the second answer, going back to the beginning of our text. Verse 22, Since you have, in obedience to the truth, purified your souls for a sincere love of the brethren. We have purified our souls. Now, God does the work, but we have the responsibility to respond to the impulses He puts in our hearts to be pure. He's purified our souls as we have set ourselves apart. Remember what Jesus said in John 17, 19. He said, for their sakes, talking about the apostles and eventually us, for their sakes, I sanctify myself. In other words, Jesus sanctified himself, set himself apart for us. For their sakes, I sanctify myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. And this is what we're called to be, men and women who are sanctified, we're set apart, we're holy, so that we can be tools in the hands of God to love this way. Once more, it's the perfect tense. Something in the past with lingering into eternity implications. Being purified from selfishness enables us to show real love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. A changed life should be evidenced by a changed relationship with God's children. Has it ever occurred to you that God didn't ask you who was going to be your brother and sister in Christ? And so we just kind of avoid some people, do we not? I don't have an amen on that, uh, so I guess all of you don't do that. I've done that a time or two, unfortunately, in my life. So we love our brothers whom the Lord knew would be a little difficult for us to love. That's Indicated in a way in Ephesians 4.2 where the Bible says we're to put up with one another in love. There's a lot of putting up with one another that needs to be done in any family, but the family of God. But we must do it for the Lord, for the glory of God, for the enterprise, for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Remember, it's the last apologetic. It's the thing that will win the world to Christ. It will win us a lot of bruises and bumps along the way, but it will be the thing that God will use to bring the world to Christ. We're to do it by our obedience to the truth, the gospel, the word of God. 
Souls are purified when they submit to the truth of the gospel. And look at what he says. The goal of this obedience to the truth and purifying of our souls is for a sincere love of the brethren. The word sincere literally means unhypocritical. We cannot fake it. Let's be real with each other. Love the brothers in this way. Well, I'd like to read a piece which I found yesterday when I was finishing up this message. And I found it in my file, and I file things away. And it has a date of June the 14th, 1999. And lo and behold, I wrote it. And I, I never remember read, writing this, but let me just read it. This, is what I, this was true 17 years ago. And it's true today. It's truer today than it was 17 years ago in terms of the urgency of what you're going to hear from me about the love of God through us. After offering care for lepers through the Gillis W. Long Hospital for the past century, the federal government is closing this leprosarium located in Carville, Louisiana. A cure for leprosy found in the 50s followed by a declining population of lepers led to this decision. Throughout its history, the hospital has been a haven for people plagued by this disease which made them pariahs from mainstream America. Consider the remarks of a long-time 80-year-old resident named Teresa, who's been blinded by leprosy. Quote, This was a healing place, not just for the disease, but mentally too. When you come here, the love and help you get make you forget about the problems of the disease. Unquote. You probably know that leprosy symbolizes sin in the Bible. You're probably also aware that Jesus responded to the Pharisees questioning his eating with sinners by saying, it is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are ill. I desire compassion and not sacrifice, he went on to say, for I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Christ's self-described mission is that he came to call the spiritually leprous to follow him. He does that today through his church. I often wonder how people who are suffering from the spiritual leprosy of sin experience our church. When they join us in worship and Bible study, weighted down and wearied with the woes of life in this world, does their experience parallel that of the hundreds of lepers who have called the Gillis W. Long Hospital their home? Do they find Coronado Baptist Church to be a healing place because of the love and help they find among us. The more prominent role Jesus plays in our fellowship, ours, yours, and mine, the more inviting our church will be to those who need spiritual healing. Join me in asking Jesus to heighten our compassion for the outcasts of our society and watch as he draws many into his church as a result. And we will be amazed at the Lord's enabling sinners to forget the problems caused by the disease of sin due to their being loved by Christ through us because their sins and lawless deeds He will remember no more when they give their lives to Jesus. Please pray with me. Forgive us, Lord, for being unloving. Forgive me for being self-centered in so many ways. And oh God, I pray, would you please increase the love of God in this church. That we would love you. We would submit to you. 
And consequently, through us, You will show that love to the other members of the body, strengthening it so that we can be Your representative in this world to make disciples of all nations. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.